0: Well, if you have your Bible, go ahead and find Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, um, in, I'm sure, probably a lot of different churches today. There's probably uh, probably a detour from maybe the the series that they were in and moving to uh, probably talking about a variety of things in relation to, to worry and anxiety and panic and all these kinds of things. Well... We're not doing that. Uh, We're just going to go right back to Mark. Uh, We're going to focus on uh, the passage that's in front of us. And I think even in times like what we have in our culture, the Word of God is extremely relevant no matter where you land in it. And and even what we're seeing today is very relevant to what we are dealing with in our culture. And uh, now in verse 14... You will see in our passage today that the disciples forgot to buy bread, right? Or at least bring bread. And some of you maybe forgot to go to the store this week and you don't even have toilet paper, right? So <clears throat> we, it's very relevant, right? It's very relevant that we act a lot like these disciples. Well, this morning, the, the title, and there's a lot of titles you could give to this message, and so uh, you can, I'm not very good at titles, I've already admitted that. So the title that I gave it was Blind Eyes and Hard Hearts, and that's exactly what we will see from our text, is this. Now, <clears throat> what we have seen through our study of Mark chapter 8, and really from Mark 6 uh, into chapter 8, uh, we've seen a pattern start to play out in front of us. And if I can put this on the, on the screen for you to remind you of the pattern that I talked about last week, these these six things that are here that are playing out from chapter 6 and through chapter 8. And go ahead and go to that next slide there too. Uh, and the fourth thing is where we're going to be landing kind of today, this conversation about bread. So that third and fourth thing is really what we're going to be seeing uh, play out in our text today. This this argument with the Pharisees and then this conversation about bread and then uh, we'll see a healing and then an a- identification of Jesus or and really an accurate identification of Jesus Christ. And these are, again are coming from in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000 and now chapter uh, 8, the feeding of the 4,000. And in all of these Things that are taking place again have a purpose and a reason that is bigger than just the events that happen. And we talked about this last week in the idea of the feeding of the four thousand and really what's being shown, what's being taught, what's being um, kind of revealed to the disciples and even to us. And the inclusion of the Gentiles into the message of the gospel. And that it's not just uh, the Israelites that are the ones that are going to benefit from what Jesus is going to do, but now the Gentile nations are as well. Uh, I I don't know about you, but it takes me some time, uh, depending on the subject, to really kind of comprehend things and figure things out. Anybody else have that problem? Sometimes it takes you a little bit of of time to kind of process through something and really kind of figure something out. Uh, in college, there was a course that I, I just struggled with, and um, it was only on my third attempt that I actually passed the class, uh, completed the course, uh, and it was just a really difficult course for me to get through, and it happened to deal with mathematics. Anybody else identify with me here? Okay, I, <laughs> thank you, I'm not alone. Uh, mathematics is not something that I really enjoyed. That I, that I really, you know, like look forward to that time of the day when, oh yeah, I can get up my math, my calculator. Uh, now some of you weird people can do that. Um, and you, you you enjoy that. It's like numbers just work with you. It's not so much with me. Um, probably one of the reasons why I struggled in this class is because I didn't see the significance of it to my everyday life. Especially in the the pattern or at least the course that I had set for me. Um, and I say for me because it was really my idea at the time not really God's idea because he kind of laughed and that's what the Bible says men make plans and God laughs uh, and that's what was happening in college for me and so <clears throat> whenever I finally completed that course I thought whew finally that's passed I don't have to deal with that and obviously today I'm not dealing with mathematics on a regular basis so I mean I was, I was not wrong um, but in mathematics we have equations, right? And there's equations that you plug in numbers or then it gets real weird, you start putting in letters, so we have numbers and the alphabet, like what's happening here? Um, And then we have these weird symbols, the square roots and whatnot. And so, whenever we look at mathematics and equations, for some people it just instantly makes sense, like they can plug in the numbers, plug in the letters and oh well, you know, this equals this and uh, yeah, exactly. Well, for me, it was more like, I don't have any clue what that is. And, to be honest, I liked the book that had the answers in the back, right? At least half of them. And you could turn back and go, okay, I I was right there. Now, maybe the work in which I did wasn't right to get to the conclusion, but at least I got the right number at the end. And then you had to explain how you got there, and it's just hard to do sometimes. Maybe for you, that's been the case, and maybe that's how also you view maybe the Bible or theology, and you're like, God, it just doesn't make sense to me, doesn't really click with me, and maybe it's because you don't really see the significance of it into your everyday life, and maybe that's the attitude in which you have, because, well, it's kind of like math. Well, it doesn't really make sense. Is this really going to apply to my life? Yes, it will, and and this book in which you have in front of you is so important to your existence, So important to your spiritual existence that we should look at just like a passage we have today and examine it closely and figure out what is this telling us? Like the pattern that we have here that we're examining, what is this pattern pointing to? Or we can say, what is this equation pointing to with chapters 6 through 8? Because really what we have, there's an equal sign here at the end of chapter 8, that all of this is pointing to. It's leading us to a conclusion, to a solution, and all of this really has a massive impact on our daily life. And so what we see here from the passage, we'll see again the Pharisees, we'll see the disciples again. We see kind of a reoccurring pattern of their thinking, of their thought process, and again, this is not far off from how we think and how we act and all of this is going to be answered in chapter 8. All of this equation is going to be given an equal sign, and then the answer is given to us in chapter 8, and it concludes in a place where we think, well, okay, everybody should get it now. Everybody should understand it. And it's kind of like one of my professors that I had in that course where he was this, uh, this short little Polish guy that I couldn't understand him half the time, and he would write a problem on the board, turn around and say, okay, and then erase the problem instantly. And, and maybe that's how you're feeling about some things in the scripture, is that you view it, you're like, okay, I got it. No, I don't. Like, you didn't have time to write it down. So this morning, as we look at this text, again, and, and how we move slowly through scripture, hopefully you've had time to process, to think, to take notes, and you can accurately identify what's really happening here. So let's get into verses 11 through 21 this morning and see... Another part of the equation, another part that is playing out in front of us. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, meaning argue with Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them and got into the boat again and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? And having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? Let's go back to verse 11 here. Again, this group, the Pharisees, again, this this ultra-religious group of people, they have a, a massive amount of the Old Testament memorized, and they're again confronting Jesus, coming to Jesus, and they argue with him. The first thing that verse 11 tells us is that they came to argue. They came to have an argument with Jesus. Now, let me ask you this question. Have you ever argued against the truth You know, you were in the wrong and you started to argue and then you kind of realized through the argument that you were actually on the wrong side of the truth, but you just kept arguing anyways. (laughs) How does it usually turn out? Not very well. Usually what happens is that we have to apologize or we avoid because we were wrong. We put distance between us and, and we don't like to do either one of those two things. And what happens here is, is that there's pride, there's self-righteousness that is causing this instant argument against Jesus, this argument of really what the truth is. The truth is right in front of them, their, their pride, their self-righteousness. It is the problem that is causing this argument. And isn't this really the case for most of our arguments that we have maybe at home or at work or wherever, is that they, they are originating from pride or self-righteousness. Now, let <clears throat> me ask this question as well is, What is your first reaction in reading or hearing the scriptures? Whenever you read something or hear something that kind of grates against you and your thinking and your lifestyle, is your first reaction to disregard it, to be in opposition to it, to argue against it? Or is it more of a response of praying, God, help me to understand this. Help me to understand what, what you mean by this and how this applies to me. I think those are two very different heart attitudes. And the Pharisees, they're having such a hard time uh, with Jesus because they have such hard hearts with Jesus. They will not and they, they cannot take the evidence that's in front of them and plug it into the Messiah equation and get to the right conclusion. They're just really struggling with what Jesus has been doing, what he has been teaching and then verse 11 tells us this of what they are arguing about and what they, they kind of have in the back of their minds and what they are asking Jesus to do. It says, they're seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. They come to Jesus arguing against what? His, his role and what he is there to do and who he really is. They're arguing against his identity and what they request from him is a sign, but a sign from heaven. Now, this is is not meaning that they just want another feeding to happen or they they want another healing to happen. These guys were involved in some of these events. They were aware of them. They've heard of them. They've talked to people about these. This is not the same thing as another feeding, another healing. This is something that is, in their minds, proving more evident that God is behind the ministry of Jesus, something that's probably on the cosmic level of things. Something maybe to the effect in their minds of maybe Joshua. Whenever Joshua spoke and said, let the sun stand still, and it stopped in its place. Well, you know, Jesus and Joshua, it's really the same name in Hebrew, Yeshua. Well, yeah, he should just be able to do that. Just do that, Jesus. Or maybe they're thinking that he should act like Elijah and call fire out of heaven. Something that's on this grand cosmic scale to prove that God is really approving of jesus in his ministry these these men were discounting everything else everything else that jesus has done everything else that has revolved around jesus and they're thinking no this is the only thing that can prove who he really is they they sought a sign to what test him they're they're testing him and the test is basically this well if he won't or he can't then that proves what about him well he must not be of god He must not really be who he's claiming to be. Now, don't really for a minute believe that you, I, wouldn't be like these Pharisees. That we wouldn't look at Jesus and and have the same kind of hard hearts against him. I think we would act probably the same way. Really just as if somebody today were to say, well, you know, they're from God and they're performing miracles. We would likely say that they're really really just a good illusionist or a magician. Now, there are some people, and and maybe even some of you, some of us, that would believe that this person was from God because they could do miraculous healings or or miracles of some sort. But what is the difference between an illusionist and a faith-healing preacher? This is not a joke. Um, the, The illusionist is telling you that they're fooling you, right? Just in their title. Their title is telling you, I'm fooling you, but a faith healing preacher is saying that they're telling you the truth when they're really just fooling you. And again, there's, there's loads of examples we could give, we don't have time to go through a list, but if we would take Jesus and compare him with the illusionist or the fake faith healer of today, and we would compare the two side by side, we would see there's no comparison at all of what happens we see this repeatedly proven by what Jesus does and how he interacts with people and with nature. He does not heal only certain types of issues or only certain people that have been filtered through by a staff of people. No, what have we seen already in Mark's gospel, also in Matthew as we referred to that, we've seen that Jesus heals anyone, everyone. It, it doesn't matter the condition. doesn't matter the disease. It doesn't matter if it's demon possession. It doesn't matter if there's a windstorm or if he has to walk on water. He is showing himself to be who he is claiming to be and has claimed to be as the son of God. He, he, he is no fake. He is no illusionist. He's no magician. He should not be compared in any sense to modern-day people believing themselves to be or trying to fool other people to believe that they are a healer of some sorts. Now, Jesus had sent to the priest back in chapter 1, if you remember chapter 1 of Mark, he had sent to the priest a man healed of leprosy, an example of his healing. He had sent him there, one for the ritual uh, cleansing that had to happen for him to be welcomed back into worship, but also as an evidence of what he had done. Also, in Mark's Gospel, in chapter 3, we see this argument with Jesus and the Pharisees, again, about the casting out of demons. And really what they were arguing about was really Jesus' authority. And, And well, how could you have that authority unless you're basically the devil? And Jesus says, that's not even possible, guys. Like, think about this. But even though they were... There really was a massive amount and a consistent amount of evidences for the Pharisees. They will not believe he is from God. They're blind to the truth. They're blind to what is right there in front of them. They're arguing once again why, because of their pride, because of their self-righteousness, and they will not listen. They will not look at the evidence that is there. Now, how does Jesus respond to this? Well, look at verse 12, and he sighed deeply in his spirits. sighed deeply. Now, this is a different Greek word that's used here to describe this sigh that what we saw back in chapter 7, verse 34, when Jesus sighed with the man, uh, the the deaf and mute man, where he sighed, showing him his compassion for him. This is a different word that's used. And what's interesting is that this is the only place in the New Testament that this Greek word is used. Once again, uh, a style of Mark's writing. Now also what's interesting about this Greek word is that it's only used in one other place in the Septuagint which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures again it's only used in one other place in the Old Testament again a very similar thing to what Mark has done before and this place I want to show you is Lamentations chapter 1 verse 4 Now what's the connection here well let's look at the verse Lamentations chapter 1 verse 4 it says the roads to Zion mourn For none come to the festival, all her gates are desolate, her priest groan, and this is where that word shows up, her virgins have been afflicted, and herself suffers bitterly. The book of Lamentations is made up of poetic forms that speak to a time of captivity and destruction by the Babylonians against Israel. Now, the the first chapter is a poem, a complete poem, and it's speaking of the heartache and the pain of Israel, of Jerusalem. It's the pain of a nation, the pain of a city. And with this in view, I think it would be fair to say that this groan, this sigh that's included there in Lamentations 1-4 by the priest is one of sadness and of sorrow. I think that would be a pretty accurate description of this sigh, of this groan. Now, we don't really know what Mark is really intending to convey with this word that's being described, that's describing Jesus' emotion here. But it's very interesting that these are the only two places that this word is used. And again, we we can see before that Mark has done this in directing us back in the Greek to a truth about Jesus and a truth about God and what he's doing. It seems that Jesus' response to the request was likely. Not out of anger, but out of sorrow. Out of sorrow for what? The hardness of their hearts. They do not understand really who they're arguing with. They, they don't see it. They don't understand who Jesus really is. Paul writes this about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15-17. through 17. He says, He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Not indivisible, that's something else. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The Pharisees do not have that perception of Jesus, do they? They do not view him in this way. No, they they see him as anti-God, as anti-Christ. Paul, I think, gives an accurate description of who Jesus is there. John has the same idea of Jesus when he writes in his gospel in the first chapter, first three verses. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What is John saying and Paul saying about Christ? He is the center of all. And these Pharisees, they view Jesus as an outlier, that he doesn't really fit into the mold, fit into the equation of the Old Testament. He is not really the one that they're looking for, and they want a sign. Show me evidence, Jesus. And it's because of their hard heart that they act this way. They do not understand who Jesus really was or, or even give any, any hint that they're going to believe that. Even though there's an abundance of evidence, they they will not look at Jesus in this way. They will not view him in this way. And what's interesting here is how Jesus responds to them with this in verse 12. Jesus doesn't give them what they want, does he? He doesn't accommodate their request. Why? Does he have the ability? Yeah, according to John chapter 1 and also Colossians chapter 1, yeah, he has that ability to to do some sort of cosmic event to prove who he really is, but he doesn't accommodate the request. Why not? Why does he not do it? Wouldn't it just be simpler? to be like, all right, guys, boom, right? But he doesn't do that. Well, we don't know why he doesn't do it, but this does prove something about Jesus, and I think this is an important point. It proves that Jesus will not, will not be manipulated or coaxed into doing anything. He only does what the Father wants him to do, not what people want him to do. There's not a single thing that Jesus did outside of the will of the Father. In John 8, 29, it tells us this. This is what Jesus tells us, is that he doesn't do anything besides what the Father wants him to do. And these Pharisees, which I think we could easily and accurately describe them as evil men, they want the Son of God to do what they want Instead of what God wants. And Jesus refuses to accommodate. He refuses to give them a sign. And this proves something also about God. According to what John chapter 1 tells us about Jesus. God will not be manipulated into doing something. That he has not already determined to do. He does not adjust himself to the wisdom of men. He only follows his wisdom and his will. And Job. You remember Job, right? Job learned this lesson in chapter 38. Of the book of Job in verse 4. This is where God finally speaks to Job and speaks to, I think, all the whining that was there, which in our view is like, well, that's rightful whining. He lost everything, he suffered much. But listen to what God says to Job in chapter 38, verse 4. It says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. What is God challenging Job on? He's challenging Job on Job's ability to question anything that God does anything. We have a God who will not be moved. And again, this is really good news for us, and especially today, right? A God that will not be moved. He will not be thrown off course. He doesn't act upon the whims or the wisdom of men, but solely upon his divine wisdom. This is really good news for us, that all of what happens, he is in control. Jesus says there in verse 12 of our text that There will be no sign given, but not just given, not given to the Pharisees, but also to who? Look, it says the generation, right? This generation. He broadens it out to not just the Pharisees. These guys standing right there saying, I'm not going to show anything to you, but I'm not going to show anything to this generation. Now, why is this? Well, Jesus is meaning that there would be no more signs given to them because haven't they had plenty of signs already? Haven't they already had plenty of signs that have shown them both earthly and cosmically who Jesus is? When Jesus was born, there there was a star that pointed him out, wasn't there? A cosmic event that happened. Was there not angels that appeared in the heavens to declare that Jesus was born, that Jesus was the Son of God? Was there not a voice out of heaven that spoke whenever Jesus was baptized, that this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased? Yes, these are all cosmic events. These are all things which these men would have been asking for and seeking for, but they rejected all of them. All the stories that they heard, all the events that they'd witnessed, all the things that they had heard Jesus teach, they reject them. But Jesus, he will give a heavenly sign to this generation. So do we have a contradiction here? And, and what I mean by that is whenever we get to chapter 9, we see that Jesus does give a sign. We have a sign to Peter, James, and John in chapter 9. It's a heavenly sign. It's the sign of transfiguration, as it's probably titled in your Bible, where where we have Moses and Elijah now show up with Jesus in kind of the peeling back of the curtain of who Jesus is and his deity. There is a cosmic event that that happens, but it's not withheld from Peter, James, and John. Now, what, what does this mean? Well, whenever we think of this phrase that Jesus used in verse 12, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no no sign will be given to this generation. The withholding of a sign was being withheld from the unbelieving generation. Peter, James, and John, they're believers in Christ. And there's a revealing, another revealing given to them. Now, if you look at verse 14 in 13 they transition again they get back in the boat they, they go to the other side and this doesn't necessarily mean they went to the other side of the lake but to a different place in the lake in verse 14 it says now they had forgotten to bring bread now I don't know who was supposed to be in charge of resources I, I don't know which one of the disciples was the one that was supposed to be you know, carrying the supplies for the group but they're doing a terrible job aren't they um, they're just doing awful now, in verse 15, they've had this conversation in 14, and then in verse 15, Jesus then cautions them about something. And what is the caution? It's about leaven or yeast. Now, seems a bit strange, doesn't it? Why would he be warning them about leaven or about yeast? Is yeast really the biggest deal that we should be worried about, Jesus? We don't have bread. Well, what does leaven represent in the Bible? What's your guess? Sin. Okay, if that wasn't your answer, you were wrong. So sin, sin is what it symbolizes. It symbolizes sin. Now the idea of leaven or yeast is that it it permeates, it spreads through the whole lump, it contaminates it, if you will, or if you are into baking, like it does what it needs to do and, and you get the result you want, a little yeast, a little leaven put into the mix, it infects the whole lump, doesn't it? It changes the dynamic of all of it. Which is what sin does. Jesus just taught this back in chapter 7, didn't he, with the idea of defilement. Where does defilement come from? Is it, is it external? No, it's an internal thing that comes from within man. This sin that Jesus is addressing and what we've seen through, uh, through his teaching, his leading through the pagan territories. It's again showing back up in this idea of leaven. Now, in verse 15, Jesus' warning is implying that the disciples are at risk of believing this skeptical attitude of the Pharisees. They're at risk of following the wickedness of Herod's behaviors as well, as Jesus points out, when he warns them against the leaven of Herod. Now, the Pharisees and Herod, they're examples of self-righteousness, they're examples of pride that blinds one's heart and mind to see the beauty of the gospel. Both parties, they were deceived, they were self-deceived. Believing themselves to be justified in their practices, in their lifestyles. The the Pharisees, their lifestyle, it represented one of very religious and also very legalistic. Believing themselves to be above others because they do all the right things. They, They wash their hands the right way, which, by the way, is for 20 seconds under hot water with soap and water. right? So the right way to wash your hands, the right way to eat food, the right kind of food what day of the week, all of these things they followed, they followed with precision. And they see themselves better than other people because they're so good and they deserve God's favor and God's loyalty because they are so loyal to God. This is the mindset of a Pharisee. They love self-righteous sin. They love the idea of achieving redemption through their own morality, through their own traditions. And they hate the truth that's standing right in front of them. Herod, he's a representation of a lifestyle of rebellion and blasphemy against God, rejecting God's message and God's messenger. We have John the Baptist being beheaded by Herod. And he's doing this all what? Openly, publicly. He is rolling around in the filth that the world has to offer the offer of power, of prestige, of of riches and promiscuity. Herod was a representation of this kind of lifestyle. He was buying anything and everything that the world was offering that was promising to give happiness and ease of life. He was loving it. Now, both of these are representative of people today. All people. People who have not repented and trusted in Jesus Christ. Everyone, everyone who has not done that, they were buying into one of these two types of thinking or or these two types of lies either trying to be good enough for God to give them what they want or not believing that God is going to deal with their sin justly both groups of people are not believing what God has promised to the unrepentant sinner which is an eternal punishment in hell both the Pharisees self-righteous prideful men they're 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 going to suffer the same fate as Herod the one that they would even look at and go that's such a wretched individual they're both moving toward this same location. Now, getting back to the disciples in verses 14 and 16, notice something here. The disciples, they're concerned with physical needs when Jesus is concerned with what? The spiritual need. Again, right in the middle of this conversation, Jesus inserts this idea of beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, leaven of Herod, and they go right back to thinking about what? What? Food, bread. This is so much the case for us today, isn't it? Again, you've been watching the news. You've been paying attention. People are panicking because of a virus that is completely invisible to the naked eye. But for the most part, there's really no concern for something else that's invisible to the naked eye. And that's the sin that is slowly dragging people to hell. There's extreme efforts and measures being taken to preserve people's lives, physical lives, but again, there seems to be little to no concern about the spiritual death that has spread across the planet. What if Christians became as concerned or even more concerned about people coming to know Jesus as they are about COVID-19? What if Christians posted as many things on social media about repentance of faith in Jesus Christ as what they have about a virus, about food, about sports, about vacations? What if we just removed all of those posts and we inserted something else that got to the heart, not just the physical heart, but the the spiritual heart of the matter? It's so easy for us to, to start to act like the disciples by only thinking about the physical world, it's the world in which we live in. We, we can't think of nothing. It's impossible for you to think of nothing because everything that you've ever thought of had to do with something, right? We live in a tangible world, a tangible world. Everything that you've ever known has been a tangible thing. And it's like, well, I have to touch it, I have to see it, I have to feel it, I have to hear it. But the disciples, even though Jesus is right there, tangibly in front of them, they're not listening. They're not seeing their heart is hardened, a lot like the Pharisees. This warning given to the disciples about being careful about the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod, it, it happened, it's happening right in front of them. They're seeing it, they're hearing it, and they're basically rejecting it. Now, when this happens, though, This happens just before, in chapter 8, it happens just before Jesus then tells them he's going to go die, he's going to go suffer. He he tells them that he's going to go die and suffer, he's going to be resurrected. He he tells them and warns them, don't fall into the trap, don't fall for the sin of Herod or of uh, of the Pharisees. He does this, I think, uh, to warn them of the temptation to abandon their faith in Jesus when he tells them. He's going to go die. I don't think there's any coincidence of the timing of this. And when he tells them this, Jesus is warning the disciples, it seems here, as, as a moment that sometimes maybe you've had your, yourself of you've been warned about something and it goes in one ear and out the other. Like, well, surely not me. And that's how most people think about death and about suffering as well. Surely it won't be me. And the disciples, they don't even give even, even any evidence that they were even listening to what Jesus said. They just go right back in and talk about bread. If you notice something from verse 16 into 17 through 21, we see again Jesus insert himself back into the discussion and, and it's a rebuke. And Jesus asked them eight questions in rapid succession here. Eight questions driving the point of the moment home and really the point of the equation of chapter six through eight i think home and so, the last question that's asked in verse 21 if you look at verse 21 the last question jesus asks is do you not yet understand basically don't you get it don't you understand what i'm saying don't you understand what's happening or what's about to happen And they do not see who Jesus really is. They do not hear who he really is. They're arguing about bread. They're arguing about who didn't bring the bread. They're missing the fact that the bread of life is right in front of them. The bread of life is right there. What does it matter if they have one loaf or no loaves? If they have a whole boatload of loaves? It doesn't matter. The bread of life is there. The one that actually produced the bread. That all things hold together in him. He is the one that's in the boat. They are in jeopardy of ending up just like the Pharisees, just like Herod, because they're missing this massive truth, the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the truth that they should be trusting to him with every part of their lives, just like you and I should be trusting him with every part of our lives, whether it be in the physical sense, with food, with air, but also in trusting him to sustain our spiritual lives. It's only through him in which we are sustained, which we are saved. But they're so wrapped up in the things of this world, the things that they can see, the things that they can touch, they are missing what is literally right in front of them. And you've heard the saying before, right? You can't see the forest for all the trees. They couldn't see the bread of life because of the lack of loaves. They couldn't see him. Why is this happening? Why does this happen to us? Why does this happen to maybe some of us in this room that we just completely miss this? We completely, we'll leave here, we'll leave church, we'll, we'll leave our Bibles and just miss who Jesus is. Why does this happen? Let me take you back to verse 17. I think in these questions, there's, there's something here that this is the third time that it shows up in Mark's gospel. And it's the question of, are your hearts hardened? It's hardness of heart. Back in chapter 3, the first part of verse 5, it says, And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. Their hearts were hardened. And then, right after the feeding of the 5,000, in chapter 6, verse 52, it says, For they did not understand about the loaves, for their hearts were hardened. Jesus asked them a very pointed question here in Verse 17. Are your hearts hardened? What's the answer to that? Yes. Yes, they are. They're just as hard as the Pharisees, as Herod, just in a a different sense. A hardened heart does not see the most obvious of issues. The Pharisees had hardened hearts, and they argued with Jesus about who he was and denied all the evidence that was pointing to what he really was, who he really was. And the disciples, they're more concerned about physical needs, and they're missing the bigger truths of, of what Jesus has demonstrated, what Jesus has explained, what Jesus is trying to direct their attention to. And we'll see later in chapter 8 that he finally just he gives it as obvious as he can. And then chapter 9 follows the same suit of revealing in a, in a cosmic kind of way who Jesus Christ is. But again, as we travel through the Gospels, you see that the disciples, they still run whenever Jesus is taken. They still cower down at the physical world pressing in on them. Hardness of hearts. It will argue with truth like the Pharisees and act as though it is not even present like the disciples. A hardened heart will deny that there's anything wrong with what they're doing, with how they're thinking, A hardened heart will only see what they want to say, sorry, with what they want to see, and will deny the most obvious of things. This is what hardened hearts do. The warning, I think, for us today is again not to be caught up into the physical world, not to be caught up into panic, not to be caught up into worry, not to be like these disciples are worrying about, well, they only have one loaf of bread when the bread of life is with them. Let's not get caught up like these men. Let's not get caught up into thinking about Jesus in a a distorted way. Let's not have hardened hearts toward him. Now, the question I think I want to leave you with this morning is, how can we overcome hardened hearts and spiritual blindness? How can we overcome that? Well, in the next two sections of chapter 8, we'll discover that. I think we'll have... Something that's pointing us to the answer in verses 22 through 30. And so you'll have to come back in the next two weeks to hear, how do we overcome this? How do we get past this? How do we fight against this? And so this morning, again, if you are struggling, and probably you're unaware of this, that you're struggling with hardness of heart, view yourself in light of this scripture, in light of Herod, in light of the Pharisees, in light of the disciples, do you have the same kind of tendency To reject truth that's just right there. Whenever you read scripture, whenever you you hear a word of God and and how your lifestyle should adjust and change and and you should repent and and believe in who he is and you just keep rejecting it. Don't let your heart be hardened this morning. Hear the word of Jesus. Trust him. Trust in who he is. Trust him in this time of of panic, of chaos, where the sky's falling like chicken little, or like a little boy that cried wolf. Be careful. Be careful not to be influenced by, by everything around you and stay focused on Christ. Stay focused on him. He's the one that sustains. He's the one that provides. Too often we, we think that we can handle things. Too often we think that we're in control of things. And all that is is, is pride. Pride. It's selfishness, it's self-righteousness. We need to submit ourselves to Christ. Let's pray. God, I do thank you for a day in which, again, we can look at your word and we can just compare it to just what's happening around us so we can see it is relevant. It's relevant to the exact moment of time that we're in. God, let us let us not be consumed with with physical things and looking at the world around us and being thrown off course, denying the truth that's right in front of us. God, I pray against hardened hearts this morning. I pray against spiritual blindness that's so present in our culture and even in our churches. God, I pray that through your power and through your working of your spirit, that God, you would soften hearts You'd remove the scales of our eyes and you'd help us to see clearly. Lord, let us not go about our lives like the world does in a a sense of worry and anxiety and panic, but to trust you. We are in the boat with you. We are safe and secured because of you. You are the provider. You are the sustainer. You are the creator of all. God, give us a right perspective of that this morning. Let us be submissive to that and how that should influence the way that we live our everyday lives and how we talk to other people, how we share the good news of this creator, of the sustainer, of the savior. God, let these thoughts sink deep into our hearts to soften the hard ground that we would be a people that reflects you accurately, biblically. That we would not try to go about our lives as if nothing, nobody else mattered. But we would act like you did, like your son did. Being compassionate and kind toward others. Meeting needs. Being a, a benefit to those around us. God, it's so easy for us to have hardened hearts toward our neighbor, hardened hearts toward our government, toward even our spouses, friends. God, I pray that you would soften us. Soften us by your word. Let us see the truth. I pray this in Christ's name.